Hi, welcome back to Producer Says What, a podcast for producers, engineers, and musicians, anybody interested in professional music production. I'm your host, Pierre Jackalone, and today uh, we're getting to be a lot like Christmas around here, and it's getting cozy, and I have been setting up amazing interviews for this podcast. And I thought I was going to wait until I could deliver those interviews before I did another episode. But you know what? It's getting to be the holidays. And I'm already getting, hey, let's wait until January. So I figured let's do one more at least. And I wanted to make this, you know, just a fireside thing. I'm going to tell a story. How's that? Uh, This is for the producers primarily and also for anybody, uh, for studio owners or potential studio owners, anybody thinking about getting into that. This is the story of my first studio. This was in New York City. I opened it in uh, 1996, and it lasted until, let's say, about uh, 1999, 2000. I don't remember exactly when I closed, but um, there's, you know, it's a a lesson, I think. Uh, I know I learned a lot from it, and uh, there was good bad and ugly in the whole experience and I wanted to go over that because maybe I can save you some trouble if you're considering opening a studio yourself or you're just looking ahead at a producing career that you want to get started in and you know maybe I can show you some wrong roads not to go down Um, but it's uh, you know the weirdest thing about life is you look back and I'm actually very happy at where I've ended up. So uh, it's hard for me to say I have regrets because who knows if I had done things differently, it would have led some other direction and not to where I am right now, which I'm again, thrilled about. So uh, without further ado, uh, let's start our little story. I was 26 when I opened my studio in 1996, and that's awfully young to open a business on your own in New York City in particular, but anywhere, and no partners. Uh, and I, at this point, uh, you know, I don't have any partners. Well, right now, um, I sort of have some partners, but it really, uh, this is mainly my business, it's my investment, um, and my current studio is solo as well. But the difference is, I had the hindsight of the, of the first you know, experience. At 26, I should have had partners. Um, And another thing, uh, another point to make about opening any business, really, but uh, particularly uh, what I would consider to be a brutal business, which is, uh, you know, a recording studio. Um, And we'll get into why that is. But um, is that I did not have business experience and I didn't have a legacy of business in my family. Uh, Neither one of my parents uh, were business people. They were both teachers. And so there wasn't a lot of advice passed down. And that's not insignificant. If you are going to open a business, it really does help to have have to have had that kind of perspective. And I strongly encourage you, if you're if you're going to start a business, to seek out advice from people who have already done this. Um, you know, it, it's uh it's just, it's tough, you know, and so um, let's get started with, uh, okay, so why is it tough? And what's uniquely tough about a recording studio? Uh, One of my um, sort of favorite axioms was always that this was um, the, the highest capital expense, lowest income business there is 
anywhere. And that's probably not true, but, uh, you know, it's close. Uh, you think about what a dentist has to buy and then how much they make later and so on and so forth. I mean, the amount of equipment that you have to buy to run a recording studio is absurd. It's it's really crazy. And, you know, uh, the rates that you can command when it's certainly when it's new, uh, you know, are not that great in general, uh, unless you as unless you individually have a reputation that commands a given rate. And you know, listen, if you can make that happen, more power to you. Um, you know, but uh, it's you know, bottom line, it's a lot of money out, and and in the beginning, at least, it's not a lot of money in, um, and that's a tough proposition. And just just to know going in, that's hard. You know, that's a lot harder than most businesses. So, um, you know, my uh, the way that I came to this was. Um, and I'll, I'll try to make the, uh, you know, the, the prologue brief uh, was, uh, you know, I went to music school, but in a unique program at, at SUNY, which is the State University of New York, at Purchase. Uh, that particular campus is really the arts campus of the SUNY system, the State University of New York system. Um, and I know uh, certain other campuses will bristle to hear that, but sorry, it's true. Um, you know, SUNY Purchase. Just not only had only has a, a full conservatory uh, in their music program and a full jazz program and 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 opera and all these other great things, but their acting, their you know, their design tech, their visual arts, all of it is really top notch. It's an incredible school, actually, and particularly for the arts. And um, the program that I went through was unique. Uh, it was started by students, and uh, it was called Studio Comp or Studio Composition. And the idea was uh, you, you took all the same courses as the classical composition majors, but you also took uh, studio classes, you know, uh, and studio engineering classes, and then also uh, specific uh, classes designed for pop music, like horn arranging or whatever song, you know, different songwriting classes. Um, and uh, so it was a great program, um, but that's you know, um, so there was some small amount of formal. Uh, studio training, but honestly, it was pretty watered down. Like, that really wasn't, you know, the thrust of what they were teaching. Um, but what happened for me was um, when I made my audition tape to get into college, and this is relevant to the whole story, um, I, uh, so I basically, uh, you know, lied to my father and told him that everybody who was applying to this school was making, you know, professional 24-track recordings in, in pro studios and got him to shell out, um, you know, it, was, it wasn't a huge sum, but, it, you know, uh, for me to go to a good studio to... And and what I did was I did I made two songs where I programmed a drum machine and then played bass and guitars and did sort of a full rock arrangement and then I did one solo acoustic and uh, the studio that I chose was uh, called Water Music in Hoboken and this was a, this was a pretty storied uh, studio uh, in certainly uh, in the New Jersey scene but really the whole New York scene um, people like Yola Tango Yola Tango uh, recorded there Freddie Johnston 
Um, you know, they had label connections, uh, and uh, you know, it was a it was an interesting place. Um, the engineer who was randomly assigned to me was a guy named Roger Peltzman, who became uh, you know, a lifelong friend. Uh, I love you, Raj, uh, wherever you are. I don't know if you're ever going to hear this. Um, and I, it was like he and I have had this sort of Zelig-like experience where we keep randomly bumping into each other throughout life in different scenarios. It's very weird, um, but it's it's cool. It's always great to see Roger. Um, uh, Roger is a truly gifted concert piano. Honest, um, but at the time he was like a staff engineer at Water Music, and uh, yeah, he was awesome. He, you know, he, uh, you know, I was, I wanted to do everything myself, but I didn't know anything about engineering. And you know, he pointed me to the equalizers. And the, uh, okay, so here's for the producers. Here's some gear. They had, uh, they had an API console, and I had no idea what that was. But I was twiddling fifty, you know, five fifty A and B EQs and five sixties, and and um, you know they they had some nice gear like they had an even tighter too and uh um and so and it was all the two inch tape you know it was just, they had a studer and um you know so I don't think my songwriting was all that great but but I made a decent sounding demo and uh you know uh through um it, it wasn't easy but I got into SUNY Purchase um. And, uh, but in the process, uh, when I, when I was done making the, the recording, uh, I don't know if it was Roger or somebody else at Water Music, but they asked me if I wanted a job, you know, and, and I don't know what they were actually offering me if they wanted me to intern or what, but, uh, you know, I told them, you don't want me representing you to clients. I don't even know how to put the tape on the, on the reel. And, um, so they said, okay, well, you know, a lot of our interns start off by uh, running sound down the street at Maxwell's. And uh, Maxwell's, for those not from the area, uh, it's closed now, but it was the best way to call, describe it is it was the CBGBs of Hoboken. And, and that's not as silly as it sounds. Like it was a really, really hip little club that, you know, everybody that was anybody you know, did stop and, and play at. And uh, so I went over there. And I, the, the moment that I went in there, it happened to be uh, CMJ, College Music Journal. And you know, this is back in 1991. And, and the, the poor house engineer was going out of his mind. It was like seven bands a night, seven nights a week. And he was just going crazy. So he, he was ready to take any help and no matter how terrible, and I was pretty terrible. I had never mixed anything ever at that point. Um, and he just put me on staff and just you know gave me a night. So uh, I really learned under the gun, under fire. I, I mean, I'm not exaggerating. My first night, it was literally like, you know, looking at the master, you know, fader on this beat up Soundcraft mixer and just sort of pushing it up, praying that sound came out. And that's where I started. Um, and at that time, the bands that were going through there were like Sebado and Belly and, um, you know, really great indie bands, you know. And uh, so that was an odd experience. But uh, so I, I did that for a few months and then I got accepted into college and then I got a sound gig at a pretty big club right next to the college 
And uh, I guess I'm not going to say their name. But I'll tell you why in a second. Um, but yeah, it, it held about I don't know six, eight hundred. Uh, maybe I'm exaggerating. It felt like that much. It was a big, big place. Uh, yeah. So general admission, it held a lot of people. It, it was it was a big place. And uh, and during I I so I mixed there. I was a staff engineer there. I was and I was commuting up there two or three nights a week uh, from Jersey City which was a long commute. And um, and I got to mix Billy Preston up there, which was insane that I got to mix him. Uh, and he, at the time, I was told, I have no evidence of this, but he had just gotten out of jail. And uh, I mean, literally, like right out of jail onto the plane came to that gig is what I was told. Um, but I saw him... And I and actually I'm ashamed to say it I didn't really know who he was actually at the time I was 21 years old and I really didn't know who he was and uh, he tore that place up like I don't know if the other kids that were in the audience knew who he was but he was incredible um, and just whipped the place into a frenzy and just what an incredible performer but anyway there was you know it was an interesting time and and some great acts came through there uh the machine i think they're still in operation with like the best pink floyd cover band ever and uh, uh you know it was just you know it was an amazing thing and i got i developed skills there uh yeah again live sound under the gun it's like the amp's not working what are you gonna do you got five seconds <laughs> that kind of thing um and it, so in that way it was uncomfortable but a great experience however three days before i was supposed to start school, uh, one of the managers there accidentally uh, crushed my thumb with a 300-pound base bin cabinet. And, um, and you know, I, I don't blame him. It was an accident. But the club uh, just disowned me. And, I mean, I had to walk half a mile to the emergency room. And, uh, you know, the, the orthopedist that did my surgery and put a plate and five screws in my thumb kind of made his career off of me. Like, it was broken in 14 places, and he, you know, put it all back together. And so, for the first two years I was in music school, my thumb was in traction, and I couldn't play anything. And that's when I really got deeper into engineering. And... Um, you know, so that's uh, that's how I came to become an engineer and then a producer because of that, really. Um, I think if I hadn't, if my thumb had been okay going to music school, I would have been more focused on making music, on playing music. And I mean, I was always interested in engineering, but obviously, but uh, it's it would have been a slightly different path. Um, but as it's as it was, you know, I spent an awful lot of time recording and mixing, and I actually ended up designing a studio. It was like the first ADAT studio at the college, and um, you know, uh, so the way that it the way that fate worked out, uh, they didn't want to know me. My my medical bills were huge. I was a, I was an independent contractor, so there was no workman's comp. So I had to sue them, and uh, I won. Um, the guy the owner was a douchebag and uh, and i don't know if that gets me explicit on this uh, episode but uh that he was and uh my understanding is the club had to close uh basically because of that lawsuit and i regret that but you know it's 
All he had to do was do the right thing and, and help me out with my medical bills, and that wouldn't happen. Anyway, uh, I didn't actually, their lawsuit, as they do, took three years, and uh, the timing was such that just as I was graduating and getting out of college, uh, I got the money. And it wasn't a tremendous amount of money, but it was, uh, yeah, it was no reason to hide it. I, I got about 50 grand. And at the time, uh, studios were even more expensive than they are now. And also, the other thing is, uh, I graduated in 95. The gear was, particularly the computers and the converters, were in serious, serious flux. I mean, anybody who was doing this work, at the, who was around at the time, can tell you, it was a nightmare. You had to buy new converters practically like every year or two. And yeah, this was the time when, you know, ADATs were 16-bit. Um, you know, most converters were 16-bit. Pro Tools, you know, didn't, almost didn't exist. It just started and it was 16-bit. Um, we had had uh, Audio Media 2 at, at my college. Um, so by 95, 96, you know, um, Pro Tools sucked. It existed, but it sucked. And um, so, again, you know, digital audio sucked. <laughs> and so every year it was getting better and better, but it, that meant, you know, new stuff every year. Um, and so I, it's a whole other story about, um, you know, why I decided to go off and open my own studio. I had done some producing and some and some independent engineering work when I was in college. I was encouraged to just keep doing that. Um, and one of the albums I had done was for uh, for Sloan Wainwright. And, you know, Sloan is incredibly talented. Uh, I love you, Sloan. Um, and I think she would have gotten signed regardless of who she was working with, uh, both on her talent and her name. And and deserves it uh, completely, and so I don't take any credit for her success. But as it so happened, uh, I I engineered her record, and um, and I was given a very generous producer credit that uh, I'm not sure I really uh, deserved. But that's the, somehow the time. Sometimes that's the way that goes in the industry too. Uh, so uh, again, I was I was encouraged to go on with. You know, uh, build, building, you know, uh, 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 my career from the perspective of engineering and producing, not starting at the bottom, not interning. And it's kind of weird because I wanted to intern. I knew I didn't know everything I needed to know, but I was also very precocious and I wanted to, you know, I, I wanted to be an engineer and a producer and I had my education you know, 26 years old. Uh, if you're not stupid at 26, bless you, you know, you're awesome. I was. I was pretty stupid at 26. And I had this money and... Uh, okay, actually, that's a good place to pick up. So I had this money and uh, <laughs> so I I knew I was going to open a studio, but I had this money and uh, I don't know about, again, I don't know about other people's lives, but my adult years were pretty impoverished. And so, unfortunately, uh, I spent about six months or so just enjoying 
enjoying not being poor. And it wasn't ridiculously extravagant, but it was going out to dinner too much in too many cabs in New York. And I had a girlfriend I wanted to impress. And um, and I probably spent about, I don't know, five, six grand that I should not have on those things, just feeling more comfortable and living more comfortably. Um and sure enough, uh, and this is, you know, lesson number one, um, when it came time to open my studio, uh, I was short about eh, almost exactly the same amount of money I spent going out to dinner and taking cabs for six months. And, and that was the downfall of that business because I put that money on credit cards and that buried me. And that buried me even though the business functioned very well, actually. You know, I was busy all the time. But it's one thing, yeah, it's bad enough to have New York bills, New York rents, New York utilities, and everything else. It, to have that on top of a crazy debt, you know, and also the worst kind of debt, credit card debt, you know, with some crazy interest rates. It's, there was no shot. I didn't, I didn't stand a chance in hell. And, um, and all things considered, uh, the fact that I kept it open as long as I did, I know I need to be proud of that, but it's still, you know, it was a mistake. Um, but anyway, so let's backtrack, though. Uh, so even without that five grand or whatever it was as an issue, 50 grand wasn't enough. It wasn't enough uh, to, to open a studio. And what I did uh, to deal with that issue was I went and worked for a music store. And uh, basically, I, I did about seven months at, a, at this music store, and I bought all the gear wholesale. And actually, better than wholesale, uh, the, the music store had a policy of uh, selling gear to their employees uh, at a 6% profit, so they still made money off of their employees. Um, and you know, whatever, uh, whether that's fair or not, I don't care. You know, that's their, that was their policy, but it didn't matter because the manufacturers really, really wanted salespeople to own their gear. So they would just deal with us directly and, and you'd end up buying stuff at 20% below cost, you know, directly from the manufacturers. Um, the, the snag with that was, um, uh, the manager uh, had to sign off on a lot of those sales. And, uh, you know, I, again, I don't want to mention names because I don't want to get anybody in trouble. The, this particular manager rose through the ranks and became, you know, uh, a pretty higher up at this company. So I don't, I don't, I don't want to out him. But um, this guy was really nice to me. Uh, yeah, he, uh, it was funny in a way. He, he, I think he even told me this, uh, that he kind of saw his younger self in me. I mean, it was obvious what I was doing. I wasn't selling anything. I was a salesperson who wasn't selling. Uh, I would just hang out in the recording booth in the back all day long, buying my gear <laughs> on the phone with the manufacturers. What I did do, though, uh, was I tech-supported the rest of the sales staff uh, if they needed uh, answers on recording gear and you know the way those stores work most people don't have a lot of real world experience when could they they're there at work all day long you know i mean the store just gives you when a new piece of gear comes out 
they they put the manual and the you know out and it's your job to read the manual and that's how much the salesperson knows more than you for the most part uh, sometimes with a particular piece of gear the manufacturer will send salespeople to a, a class or something but uh, for the most part they don't know too much more than you do <laughs> um, but at least not then I don't know if anything's changed but uh, so I was tech supporting. Um, you know, people on recording gear, and that was, you know, that was useful to the store in general, uh, people. Uh, and I don't remember if it was officially codified with the manager, like if you ever actually said it, you know, if it was just an unspoken kind of arrangement, but that was the arrangement. I, I was tech supporting, he would sign my forms and I would get my gear. So uh, at the end of the day, um, I got my studio and some interesting things happened. And it's, again, I hope this isn't boring people, but if you're trying to be a producer or whatever, this is some interesting stuff, I think, um, which is, uh, first of all, I got a lot of cutting, like new gear at the time. I got one of the first Soundcraft Ghost consoles off the line. Like uh, It was released at that time. Uh, so I got a 32-channel Soundcraft Ghost. Um, and amazingly, those things are still sought after. They're, they're perfectly good you know, mixing boards, analog mixing boards. Um, the most interesting thing that happened, though, was this company, Sonic Solutions, who they're, they're really worth being aware of, even though they still exist under the name Soundblade, but you really don't see them very much anymore. Back then, they were in every major mastering studio, or almost every major mastering studio, because they were one of maybe two or three workstations that could do 24-bit audio. Uh, they, uh, the founder uh, was uh, a man named Dr. James Moore, and uh, I don't know if he's still doing it, but uh, last I heard, he was in charge of something at Adobe now, um, you know, rather lofty, uh, brilliant guy. Um, again, I can be corrected on this if I'm wrong, but my knowledge of the story is uh, he was... He had done some very, very early cutting-edge work in the development of digital audio in general and was hired by George Lucas uh, to work at some place they called, he called the Droid Factory, developing digital audio. Uh, and, and then he, James Moore, developed uh, this system called No Noise that could... Uh, you know, redu that could eliminate broadband noise and was selling it as a service to Hollywood uh, films. Uh, a very, very expensive service. I don't know what platform he was running it on at the time. Uh, eventually, he was able to port it to the Macintosh. I think this was in 1989. And he designed a, a DAW around the noise removal system. And that became Sonic Solutions. And Sonic was incredibly expensive, incredibly turnkey. You had to use exactly the right Mac with exactly the right configuration and exactly the right hard drive and the you know CD burner. Everything had to be you know, to their spec. Um, and even then, <laughs> it was buggy as hell. Uh, and you know, and learning it was was really it was a trial by fire. Um, you know, and 
they um, so what one of the the reason I bought it was for the sound quality. You know, it was the only, one of the only twenty four bit systems, and uh, because I owned this thing, um, I started having people coming to me asking me to do mastering. And that's how I backed into mastering, uh, and which sounds absurd because mastering is, you know, usually uh, you would think of it as this lofty thing that you do after you know all the other stages. Um, and, you know, I mean, to be fair, I had done all the other stages, but, you know, um, it, it was... It was definitely, it wasn't something I went into it intending to do. Um, now, there was this incredible resource uh, that, uh, that it was an email list server out of uh, University of West Virginia, I believe. And uh, on this list server was, you name it, Bob Ludwig, Bob Katz, Ted Jensen, you know, Charlie Pilsner, like uh, just incredible talent. Uh, in the mastering community and uh, and global mastering community, um, there Peter Mew from Abbey Road, uh, amazing people. And as a 26 year old complete neophyte, uh, this was the most incredible educational resource I ever could have stumbled on, and it was that alone was worth every penny I spent on the system. Um, and so I learned. I read a lot and learned and, and, and paid attention and did the work. Um, and it didn't hurt. You know, I, I had pretty decent monitors. I had KRK 9000Bs with a subwoofer and, um, and a fairly big control room. And, uh, you know, I was lucky. I had, I had a pretty accurate monitoring system and uh, I had purchased a, uh, a lexicon converter that could do 20-bit and was pretty good, actually, even for that time. And um, so I was doing a lot of mastering. And I think during the time I had that studio, I mean, I did upwards of 150 albums, maybe more. Uh, for a period of time, uh, I had the Knitting Factory Works uh, record label sending me uh, stuff to master from incredible... New York jazz artists, um, you know, Matt Dario and, um, you know, just a, a lot of stuff. Uh, the, the business side of that was very difficult. They did not want to spend money. They really wanted to do it in-house. And, you know, there would be these, these periods of time when they would buy a TC finalizer and try to do it themselves, and then they'd come back and... You know, uh, there was a, there was a lot of like, can we give you half the money and you can do a half mastering? Yeah, it was like literally, I got asked that, um, and the poor artists would just go into their pockets and and you know pay for the other half that that you know that they wouldn't that the label wasn't paying for, and uh, but it was great music, it was great experience, and and the um, and the and again. Um, Roger Peltzman from Water Music pops up during that time, and he had produced uh, a record for an artist named Lee Feldman. Feldman and uh, Lee uh, Lee's music sounds—I think it's fair to say. I hope he agrees. Uh, it's pretty influenced, at least, by uh, Randy Newman, um, and it's great. Uh, Lee's super talented, and Roger's super talented, and they made a beautiful record. Um, 
And what Roger had done was uh, they had recorded it at some, I don't know where he recorded, Roger, Sears, did you go to? Uh, anyway, they did a beautiful job. They, they recorded this amazing record, but uh, this is before, you know, a lot of DAW access. And what they did was they mixed every single song uh, with the vocals, like one dB up, one dB down. 2 dB up, 2 dB down. They have multiple you know, mixes of every song. And Roger came in. This was actually, it was signed to Mercury Records when he was making it. Uh, so Mercury was paying my bills. And the whole project for me was uh, Roger going through every single song and saying, okay, this verse used the 1 dB up, this chorus used the 1 dB down. And that was, you know... Um, and, you know, <laughs> it was a very meticulous process, editing process. Um, but that was, you know, that, that, that was kind of something that was among the wide variety of work that came in the door. Um, and uh, so, uh, basically, I think it's important to get to the point that, um, so when I was, so when I opened the studio, I was on 20th Street between 5th and 6th Avenue in Chelsea. This is a nice area. Um, and it came with some ridiculous expenses. Um, those buildings in Chelsea had a deal with a meter reading company that was holding Con Edison hostage. They had a contract with Con Edison since electricity was invented or was installed. That that this one company got to read all the meters and of all these historic buildings, and in perpetuity, <laughs> and they're probably still doing it. And you had to pay Con Edison and them, and so the electric bills were just unreal. And I think my monthly nut at that place was about four and a half grand. And that was not including insurance, which, uh, let me tell you, that went the wayside pretty quickly. I, I mean, I got it to get the lease, but I was not able to keep that up. Uh, and almost the entire time I had that studio, it was under pretty extreme duress. Um, the uh, Basically, I immediately, like, well, because I put the, the five grand I didn't have on credit cards, Um thinking like an idiot that this was a business and money will be flowing in and I'll be able to make these you know, payments and you know, I'll, in the end I'll pay a fortune in interest but I'll still be able to do it. No, that's, <laughs> that's no. Let's clear that up right now. Um, new businesses in general rarely make money right away and this and recording studios in particular, no. Um, unless again, unless you already have a really well established, client following no you're not going to make money right away and you got to be ready to float a business in the beginning and i was not at all ready to float that business at all and so basically it was a mad scramble for cash to keep the lights on and just to keep my rent and and to stay stay in the place uh from the minute you know from from go you know from the day i opened and very quickly, I defaulted on the credit cards, and my routine basically was, I mean, I was in the middle of a lot of offices anyway. It was an artsy area. Um, actually, this, comp this film company opened up literally right next door to me. That was edit they edited uh, uh, Tim, um, oh, what the hell's his name? 
Anyway, uh, they edited a major motion picture right next door to me. There was that kind of thing going on. It wasn't, you know, uh, it wasn't all just business offices. But nonetheless, I couldn't make a lot of noise during the middle of the day. But at 5 o'clock, everybody went home, and that's when I did my work. And I could make all the noise I wanted all night long because it was not residential. So I had this nocturnal business. <laughs> um, but during the day, what would happen after a while was uh, was people banging on the door looking for, you know, trying to collect uh, money on, on those credit cards. Um, and it was traumatic. It, you know, it was not fun to go through. But I just kept plugging away, and I'd have to sort of compose myself and be normal for clients uh, while I was, you know, instead of sleeping, being harassed for money all day. Um, and, you know, it, it's, it does a lot of psychological damage. You feel like, you know, you're a loser. And I do. I'm, it's easier if I say you, but it's me. I felt like I was a loser. Um, and, but, but, you know, it's at the same time, I was running a business that was staying in business. And, and so, um, you know, it was a very difficult proposition and, and trying to learn at the same time and do all the things you do to have a business in a studio uh, while going through all of that. Um, and, you know, eventually uh, it all kind of got the better of me and, you know, I closed after uh, you know, three, three and a half years. Um, and then I didn't declare bankruptcy right away. Um, I tried to, you know... I, I I don't know. I thought that that was like the worst thing to do in the world, and so I tried to, um, you know, I kept thinking I was going to like somehow get my life together and get an income where I could pay all this off. But by the time I closed the studio, you know, the debt had spiraled, and that five grand was like sixty grand, and there was no way I was going to do anything about it. But but I kept trying and, and evading, and, and um, it wasn't until uh, 2005 that I finally declared bankruptcy uh, when they passed uh, a bill, a law, saying that you could no longer uh, wipe credit card debt with a bankruptcy. So I made sure I was one of the last people under that wire. Um, but, uh, you know... Again, a lot of psychological damage happened with that. Uh, during that time, you know, I, I couldn't sign a lease. I couldn't do a lot of things. I couldn't have a bank account because they would just seize it almost immediately. All my, I had to get paid, you know, I, I had to cash checks and, and move jobs when they found me and, and that kind of thing. I mean, I felt like a fugitive and, um, and you know, dumb. And in retrospect, I should have just bankruptcyed out immediately. But, um, you know, you don't know these things until you go through them all. And, um, and none of this had anything to do with my skill as an engineer or producer either. And I was producing the whole time. Um, you know, uh, after I closed the studio, I was still independently producing. My wife and I had a band. Um, and you know, we, it was, we were, I, I kept doing what I, what I wanted to do, but the business side really did a number on me. And that's, that's really one of the reasons I wanted to do this podcast because, um, you know, that's a lot of pain. And I, if there's anybody out there that I can help spare them, spare them some of that, I want, I want to help them because it's not, uh, you shouldn't have to go through that. And, um, you know, there's a lot of ways I could have done all of that better. But at the same time, 
you know, um, you live the life you live and, and you take stock in the good. And, you know, I learned a ton. I mean, when I had that studio open, it was seven days a week, you know, 12, 14, 16 hours a day. I was just working all the time. And, and you know, my health suffered from it uh, physically. I was living on caffeine. Um, but uh, it was still, um, I learned so much, you know. Uh, and I had, there were so many experiences that I went through during that time. Um, you know, I mean, the, all, the wide variety of clients that came in the door, um, you know, okay, so, uh, here's, so let's, let's go through some of that. I mean, that was interesting stuff. Uh, things that can happen when, you, <laughs> when you're mastering for, you know, whoever comes in the door. Um, I one time, uh, okay, here's a name I'll mention because what, you know, it's not that bad, but it was uh, Louis Fleck, Bella Fleck's brother came in and he had an album, a CD he wanted to master that was, it was like 50 bumpers. Like it was a minute, minute and a half, you know, TV bumpers, most of which were reggae and, you know, influenced of some kind. But they were all, they're almost all like programmed, you know, programmed drums, programmed horns, and you know, all this stuff. And it, it's a mastering nightmare. <laughs> you know, I mean, for every like 50 distinct pieces of music, it was horrible. And, and I was charging, you know, uh, by the CD or by the album, and I got killed on that. Uh, you know, price and time-wise. But the biggest uh, joke of it, the biggest lesson <laughs> was um, was when I finished mastering it, you know, I, 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 my disposition towards mastering at the time was bigger, clearer, you know, is necessarily better. And, and that's, you know, that's true 99% of the time, but this was the 1%. And after I finished uh, the first you know, round of mastering and showed it to him, you know, his reaction was, well, that's cool, but now I can hear how bad the horn samples are. <laughs> and I had to go back and re-EQ the whole damn thing, you know, um, and to not make, you know, 5K so clear or whatever, you know, that was going to give away the samples. And... Um, you know, it was it was a nightmare. So uh, yeah, you go through some of these things, and and you know, well, the big lesson is just turn a job like that down. Don't do it. But um, but yeah, the the other big lesson <laughs> was sometimes there's things in a mix that you don't want to polish up, and you and you know, it's uh, it depends. Um, you know, uh, but there were so many other you know. Incredible jobs, you know, that, uh, you know, mastering gigs, um, you know, um, that, again, I just, I, I learned a ton. I had a client once who uh, was like, did a reggae record, and his day gig was playing steel drum outside the line to the, Staten, uh, to the um, Statue of Liberty ferry, and he paid all of his bill, all of his sessions he paid for in $1 bills, <laughs> you know, every $301 bills, um, and that's New York, and it's, and it's wonderful, and there was, there was a huge variety of things. But okay, so here's here's one that was really uh, something, which is uh, I had a client that I'd had him for a few months, and he we'd done a lot of work. He was making a sci-fi folk record um, of the story of War of the Worlds, and uh, and he had tweaked the story a bit. Um, and they were good songs, you know. And he had hired some really great New York jazz musicians to come in. And, 
and play them. And the technology I was using, I was using these Akai dedicated hard disk machines, uh, an 8-track and a 16-track synchronized, and they had ADAC cards in them. And um, it was a cool, you know, they were cool boxes for the time. Um, you know, it was an ADAT that you could copy and paste with, and it was kind of cool. But um, the problem was tons and tons of data. And I had to back up, you know, every night and 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 reload the next day's projects and it took forever i was backing up to uh to an exabyte tape drive um you know what is eight millimeter tape is what it was um it took forever it took it took forever and the the thing that happened was every time you hit record every file that got created every punch you know every track you know, it created a new file, and the um, the machine, it's the operating system of the Akai's only had three digits or something on them, and so they had a file size, they had a file limit of 999 files, and even Akai didn't seem to be aware of this. Um, and so after months of working with this client, uh, one night I backed up his project and it's, you know, like always it said backup finished and I thought everything was fine. And then I went to load it in his next session, whatever it was a week later. And the problem is this, you know, it, there were more than 999 files and the thing just stopped and it at the time you know, it was writing the header that told the machine where all the files went at the end, so it never wrote it. So it was 999 files of garbage. Yeah, you know, it had no idea what they were or where to put them. And frankly, there was no way to recover them. You know, like it couldn't even recover them without the header. Uh, it would it would go through the whole process and then just fail. Um, and Akai couldn't help me. Nobody could help me. And I lost this guy's, I lost his work. I lost, you know, months of this guy's work. And I'll never forget it. It was the worst experience, you know, professionally of my life. And, um, and I had to tell him and it sucked. And I, I, I gave him, uh, you know, I didn't make it better, but like, I, I wound up giving him like, uh, the first acoustic guitar I ever owned, um, and, you know, I don't think he ever really got over it. Um, I think he understood that it wasn't, you know, intentional, obviously. But, um, but it wasn't even... I don't know if he understood that it wasn't a sloppy thing on my part. I mean, even Akai didn't know. Um, but, uh, you know, it doesn't matter. He, you know, he lost and he was hurt. And uh, yeah, he eventually got the album finished. Uh, he finished it after I closed, and I passed on the uh, those Akai units and all, most of my gear to a friend of mine who had a studio, and, and that guy finished with him. Um, and I'm glad he finished, but, you know, it was a heartbreaking experience. And um, let me tell you something. It doesn't have to be that bad to still suck. <laughs> um, I cannot stress enough how important you know uh, file management and backups are and you know um, and really 
I, you know, and I, listen, even with that experience under my belt and all these years, I could still be better about it. You know, it's, it's, you're never good enough, you know, and, and stressing that to get your clients to buy their own backup devices and, and, and manage them. And, you know, it's just, it's a heart wrenching experience. You never want to have to go through. You never want to have to tell a client that you lost their data. Um, trust me. So, um, you know, take it from me. Don't, don't be me. Don't go there. You know, um, do everything in your power, have multiple backups, do everything you can. Um, and, you know, look, I mean, everybody says that, but I'm telling you, you hear in my voice, like, you don't want to go through what I went through. That was a discussion you just never want to have, have to have. So, um, so that, that was a good lesson. Um, and, uh, you know, at the end of the day, um, you know, I met uh, the woman that eventually became my wife as, when I was running that studio. And, you know, other good things happened in my life from it. And, uh, and I took the skills that I gained uh, during that time with me. Um, but the, the, the end, you know, the, to wrap all this up, uh, when I opened my next studio, which was, uh, whew, so I opened in January of 11. So, um, you know, tw 12 years later, 11, 12 years later, um, it was a very different experience. <laughs> you know, I opened my, my, my first cardinal rule was no debt. You know, uh, the, whatever the studio is, it has to earn its keep. And and you know what? It made it a, a slow rise. You know, it took a couple of years. And, and, same, and, and also the expectation of profit and so on and so forth. I mean, I opened this time in Pennsylvania, sort of in the country. And, you know, it's not like New York. In New York, you put out a shingle and everybody, and if the price is right and the gear is right, everybody comes. And, you know, but out here... They have to sort of get to know you, and and uh, people sort of had to circle for the first two years, and then you know something broke, and somebody came in and did a get and did, and did a project, and then um, by yeah, year three I broke even, and uh, in the in my current location, um, but I was prepared for that this time, and um, and that's my biggest advice if you're thinking about doing this: prepare, prepare for that, prepare to not make any money at first, and. Um, you know, uh, it, it's amazing um, how much just perseverance counts for everything. You know, if you can hang in there, outlive your competition, <laughs> you know, just keep building it. And, uh, you know, eventually, you know, um, things start to come together. I mean, I, I'll be honest with you, you know, uh, four years ago, if you asked me, like, is it possible to success, you know, to run a successful business of a recording studio? I would have said no. You know, I mean, I was, I, you know, I was, I'd already broken even, but I wasn't doing much better than that. And you know, the the expenses are so great, um, it, it really seemed, you know, like too daunting. And my in my own head, my feeling was. I just can't see myself doing anything else. I mean, I know how to do other things, but um, but you know, this is what I was born to do, and if it means I got to be poor, then I got to be poor. But um, but 
you know what? Uh, hanging in there, eventually the whole world, you know, will go by you. And, uh, you know, things broke open and good luck happened and, you know, um, and better clients came along. And I also learned some uh, lessons about uh, rates and, 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 you know, and again, I'm not so sure I would have done anything differently. Uh, I think my rates naturally rose with the quality of the services rising as well. Um, but there's no question that as rates rise, uh, your clientele changes, and that's not a bad thing. I mean, you know, it's, it's, and you can do, you can make accommodations, you know, um, I mean, I certainly have uh, clients now who, you know, who are um, stretching resources, uh, but I also have a lot more clients who uh, who aren't, you know, who have the money to, uh, to pay, you know, a higher rate, and um, and you know, the fact is, you wind up just pretty much just getting different clients as your rate goes up is really the truth. Um, and and one nice thing about that is you actually end up getting a lot less problems in general. Because you get people who can afford it, um, you know, you get a lot more desperation when your rates are low, and that's just a fact, you know. Um, so that's something to think about. You know, again, you can't. It's something I don't think you can really rush. I think you know, you you have to be worth the money, you know. So you have to, it's, you have to have the ears, the gear, the experience, you know, all of it. Uh, but you know, it's an interesting sort of dynamic where as you build those things and the rate goes up, certain problems kind of fall away. And that's a nice thing. Um, so, you know, stick at it. You know, like if you're in that, in those opening phases, you know, yeah, it's hard, you know, but there is a light at the end of the tunnel. Just keep, just keep at it and just keep building keep reinvesting and um and you know you you can eventually have it the way you envisioned it but it's hard it's hard work and um you know again uh i want to make this more of a back and forth discussion so if you have comments or questions on anything i've said here um you know, hit me up in the comments on social media um you know this is going to i'm going to post uh to instagram and and facebook and twitter and uh, you know um by all means you know uh share with me uh your thoughts and and you know, again, if I can answer any questions, I'm happy to do that too. Um, uh, so again, uh, social media is at uh, it's at Hopetown Sound. That's it, and that's the same for all of it for you know Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr. It's all at Hopetown Sound. The website is just HopetownSound.com. And, uh, you know, um, and also if you're enjoying all of this, any of this, if this is meaningful to you, um, you could do me a huge favor, leave me a five-star review on iTunes and, you know, help, let's help build it all. And I'm going to keep working at this. This is episode three. It's going to get better. I promise we're going to keep working at this. Um, oh, a uh, preview of upcoming episodes, uh, interviews uh, that I've been lining up. I'm really, really excited about this so that I don't have to keep babbling because I think these people are more interesting than me and I'm looking forward to that. Uh, so I'm going to name names because they've said yes, if that's okay with them. I hope it is because I'm going to do it anyway. Uh, drummer extraordinaire. I mean extraordinaire and both and person extraordinaire. Jim Hines. I love you, Jim. You're awesome. 
Uh, you know, I've had this incredible privilege. He moved to the New Hope area a few years back, uh, and what an amazing uh, musician. Uh, Jim was the drummer for uh, Brian Wilson from the Beach Boys for 10 years. Uh, you can see Jim playing. Uh, there, the, uh, there was a special, there's probably a few of them, on AXS uh, TV, Access, whatever they call that. Um, there was a tribute to Brian Wilson and everybody from the Red Hot Chili Peppers to the Bare Naked Ladies and all these people uh, got up and, and played Brian Wilson songs. Jim was the house drummer you know, for that gig, so you can actually see him in that if you get a chance. Uh, and before that, he was you know, an in-demand session drummer in Chicago for 20 years or more, and uh, everything from rock to jingles. And uh, God, he's got so many stories. Uh, he's just an incredible human being all the way around. Um, and uh, you know, I've been so privileged to have him uh, available for session work. Um, I would say, you know, he's one of the greatest, you know, his availability is one of the greatest assets of, you know, this studio and me as a producer, you know, to be able to, you know, provide that, you know, that level of performance on drums for clients is incredible. Um, so Jim is is lined up uh, to do an interview. And um, okay, I just, and it keeps, it's just as great. Uh, Barb Morrison, uh, uh, love Barb. Barb is just an incredible producer. They've been based out of New York City and has produced albums for Blondie, several albums. Uh, you know, these are gold records. Uh, yeah, Franz Ferdinand, uh, so many others. Uh, Barb has been partnering with a fellow alumni, uh, Jonathan Jetter, a fellow alumni of, of SUNY Purchase, Jonathan Jetter, who has made his own great name as an amazing uh, recording engineer. Uh, the two of them are an amazing team. I've had the privilege of working with Barb a few times. Uh, you know, we've done some writing together and some producing together. Barb is a fireball. They've just such an amazing person uh, with great stories and just a, a phenomenal personality. I can't wait to have that conversation that's just going to be so exciting so much experience and we're just we're new york homies you know we speak the same language we just have so much fun together so that's going to be a great one john sontag uh a producer uh he lives in lambertville new jersey now but uh we, we go all the way back to new york too um john was actually in a songwriting uh group with my with my wife uh with jen um uh, you know, back in the day. And, um, you know, John is an in-demand uh, independent producer. Uh, he has his own recording studio and production company, Barking Pumpkin. Um, and he's also uh, a solo artist himself and, and you know, regularly plays festivals like Falcon Ridge and and so on. Um, just an incredible talent, amazing guitar player, you know, session guitar player, um, and just great producer. Uh, just, you know, um, again, and super, super nice guy. Uh, so this is going to be so much fun, and that's just the beginning. I, I've 
got a lot of, uh, I mean, it, believe me, if you're out there hearing this going, why not me? Yeah, it's coming. I'm, I'm going to get to you. Trust me. <laughs> I know so many awesome people I want to get on here. Um, so th- it's, it's, uh, it's kind of uh, breaking my heart because th- th- I think that's going to be the best asset of this show is all these incredible people. But we're just getting started. Um, so thank you for hanging in with me babbling. And I hope you're get- gleaning something from it. And and it's coming. Trust me, this is going to get really good. All right. Uh, so, uh, I guess happy holidays to everybody, and happy New Year. And I will see you on the flip side of 2020. All right. Take care. Bye bye. <laughs>